From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Shockman. Thank you for joining us. Coming up later this hour, we'll unpack the North Carolina statute that prevents the release of police video like body and dash cam footage. We'll break down how that law impacted the story of Andrew Brown, who was fatally shot by Pasquotank Sheriff's deputies in Elizabeth City. And we'll look at how the law has worked with cases here in Wilmington. Plus, we'll explore the idea of urban agriculture and the new possibilities that might be unlocked by Wilmington's new city code. But first, I'm joined by Nelson Bollier and Stephanie Adams, the vice chair and chair of the New Hanover County Board of Education. Nelson and Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you for, for having, having us. us today. That was in unison. That was good. I know. Yeah, we, pra- we practiced. We worked together. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I do want to just touch on this. Um, this week, there were more plaintiffs added to the civil case against the district. Um, and I, I just wanted to give you guys a chance to acknowledge that. And then we can move on to the topic we had planned to talk about. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, New Hanover County Schools has understood uh, since this lawsuit was filed that there may be additional students who come forward with claims. Uh, it's a class action lawsuit, uh, and we are continuing to exchange and gather information with the previous plaintiffs, and we will do so with the newest plaintiffs. Fair enough. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. So the reason uh, we wanted to have you in to talk today is about, well, the pandemic and where our students are after a year of this. Um, so let's start with, you know, from your guys' point of view, you know, how are our students doing? I mean, I'll speak to it as a board member, but also as a parent. So I have a nine-year-old son who's in third grade. And, um, you know, I've seen it on both sides of it. We've had so many difficult decisions. I think if anybody had told us when we ran back in 2018 that we would be facing a shutdown of schools, not being able to have graduations, um, just declining mental health, I think that people would have said, oh, my gosh, there's no way that's ever going to happen. Our kids have been through a lot. And um, so have our teachers and all of the staff that have had to confront this. It's a change. Change is never easy. What I will say that has been a positive that's come out of this, we've looked at education a completely new way. Um, the district is moving forward with a one-to-one, which means that every student over the next five years will have access to a device, whether it's an iPad or a laptop of some sort. Um, the pandemic pushed us to that and helped us see this is a priority. We need better technology within our system. Um, we've created more access to hotspots. Um, the remote learning is not um, going away. It's not going to be our primary source of education. We know that students need face-to-face education for that social-emotional support, but um, remote's an option, and it's fantastic. And especially, we live on the coast, hurricanes. If we have a hurricane, we get shut down for a while. We'll have better access now to technology and have better usage of how to not just use it, but how to create with it. So I think that there's been some positive on that side from the pandemic, if you want to speak to more of the mental health piece. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I have a sixth and seventh grader, and I've seen the same type of thing. Um, Academically, um, you know, they're doing well. Their grades are okay, but they're just not getting what they get in that face-to-face environment. And if you look at our numbers as a district, failure rates, um, some students just not even attending school, um, we are at a point in the pandemic that I am comparing to the end of the hurricane. And we all know, like we said, we live on the coast. We all know what happens after they're gone. There's a massive cleanup. We're still cleaning up uh, from Florence. This very building uh, still has damage from Hurricane Florence. We have work to do uh, as a country, as a state, and as a community over the next 10 years to make sure that the damage wrought by the COVID-19 pandemic Uh, does not stick with our kids uh, for that duration. Uh, And everybody's going to have to be at their best. Yeah. 
Uh, I know one concern is obviously standardized testing, mm -hmm. but another concern is academic development of students, some of whom, as you mentioned, fell through the cracks. I mean, it's a difficult time and it just emotionally mm -hmm. took its toll on some of those students. Um, how concerned should we be with catching them up versus, you know, trying to develop an understanding that this was an unprecedented year and, and maybe we can't catch up? Uh, I don't accept the premise that we can't catch up. Um, I think that we have to do everything we can to make sure that our students graduate where any other group of students graduated. Uh, fa failure in this regard is just is not an option. Uh, you know, if you look at the commitment that our uh, our school system made uh, with regards to our most recent budget that we just passed um, and that's going before the commission, we understand how important it is to get students back on track, and you do that by having the best teachers. And uh, we asked the county to commit to paying our teachers at the top level, and, and they've agreed to do that. We're going to have some of the best teachers in the state of North Carolina teaching right here in New Hanover County Schools, and that's going to help immensely in terms of getting our kids back on track. And just to say that we already do have the best teachers in the state working in New Hanover County, but we want to make sure that we can retain those fantastic teachers as well as recruit others to come here. We know that Wilmington, New Hanover County proper is growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Um, to address the catching back up piece, um, you know, this year is not something that um, it, it's not just going to go away easily. And I would love to say we're going to snap our fingers and everything's going to be fine. That's not the reality. Our, our kids have been challenged in so many different ways, and we're seeing it from the mental health perspective. We're seeing anxiety going up, depression going up. So we have to be able to address those pieces of what have our children lost. They've lost socialization. I see it with my own son. You know, when he first started going back out into the real world around people, he forgot how to interact. You know, I kind of did too, you know. So um, we need to be able to support those aspects of it as well. Um, and so we've, uh, again, with the budget for next year, we have um, upped our amount of mental health professionals. Um, the, the city, or excuse me, the school system has um, committed to 14, and I believe the county is going to be supporting another nine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh. Right. Was that reverse? That. <laughs> reverse. The nine, we, our budget's supporting the nine, 14 from the county uh, to support mental health for students because we know that's coming. Um, so from the mental health piece, that's the first. If you are not in a good mental health space, it's very hard to learn. We have to address the whole child issue. The other piece of it is the academic piece. Um, the school system is addressing that by, um, they've created the Summer Ignite program. This came out of legislation from the state. Um, this is a six-week summer school program, an enrichment program, and it's going to be different than typical summer school that focus solely on math and English, math and reading. Um, the summer school program is going to give all aspects of of school. It will be a safe space for students to come every day, breakfast and lunch, hot meals. Um, there will be enrichment times, outdoor activity times, but also the opportunity to learn whatever has been lost over this past year. So there will be a varying uh, amount of subjects that they'll be covering. Gotcha. So one other thing I want to ask you guys about, since we've got a couple uh, minutes here left, uh, is another process that got interrupted by the pandemic. We were talking about this off mics before we started the show, and that is the redistancing process, which uh, was sort of greenlit back in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, both of you in 2018 when you ran were very passionate about, you know, inequitable dis distributions of demographics across the New Hanover County school system. Um, you know, where do you feel like we could be in a couple of years? Where are we now? How do you guys feel about that right now? Want to start? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, first, I'd you know, point out that the redistricting process that we went through uh, did address some of that. Not, not enough. 
there's still a lot more work to do. Uh, but the process of resegregating our school system wasn't done over a single redistricting, and it won't be undone over a single redistricting. Our kids have been through a lot. Uh, I think going back this year, next year, the year after even, and, and redistricting, uh, it wouldn't be in the community's best interest. It wouldn't be in the interest of our, the best interests of our students. Uh, but, you know, we have plans to open new elementary schools over the next five, six years. That will require some redistricting. Um, but, you know, in a larger sense, I think it's also important to just look at the individual students, not just the schools, because you can have an, an A school with a failing subgroup. Um, so it's not just getting our schools to A's and B's. It's making sure the kids are getting A's and B's. It's about the whole student. That Not only are they getting good grades, but they're getting the emotional support. Um, they're getting all the things that they need to be successful. Do they feel that they belong? I mean, that is what is the most important aspect of this. In your school building, do you feel valued? Do you feel respected? Do you feel supported? And do you belong? Not just for our students, but for our staff as well. Um, I think, you know, with the redistricting piece, um, I really want our community to take a step back and understand our own fear. Why are we so scared of our child going to a school that's maybe not in our neighborhood? Why are we worried that they may be in a classroom with someone that looks different or had a different life experience? We live in a global economy. You have to be able and be prepared to work with people from different backgrounds. If you are sitting in a classroom with 20 other kids that are exactly like you, have the same family life, have the same vacation experiences, have the same car that you drive, that's going to be really hard for you to adapt into a business environment where you're expected to work with people from all over the world um, that have different expectations. So I think that it's really important. We need to look inside ourselves to understand why did we get such pushback on redistricting? I made a choice. I took my child from our neighborhood school, and we did open choice and moved him into a diverse environment. The, the racial makeup of my son's school is 52% uh, African-American, 24% uh, Hispanic, 22% white. Um, and I love it. You know, he comes home and he gets to talk to me about one of his classmates that started the, the school year speaking all Spanish. And now he speaks with him back and forth in English and Spanish. You know, um, it's, it's experiences like that are, that are real world that these kids are going to see as they, as they get older. And so I think it's important um, that we continue the conversation. But it's not just us that can fix it. It's the city. It's the county. And it's the people of New Hanover County that need to say, OK, what are we trying to prepare our children for? And, you know, adding to that, if you look at the uh, the big companies, the big Fortune 500 companies, you look at Coca-Cola, you look at Delta Airlines, uh, there is a movement in the business community um, that recognizes the economic value in diversity. They're not doing these things. They're not bringing these companies in. They're not preaching equity because... It's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it, but they're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because it's the good business thing to do. They're making money doing the right thing. They realize that their employees are healthier with those varied experiences that Ms. Adams just mentioned. Um, and we have to understand that we're preparing kids to enter that economy. So that has to be a part of how we teach our children. And all the research supports that diversity breeds innovation. 
So if you are in caught in a group think situation and we're all sitting in a classroom thinking and being the same, then we're not going to innovate. We're not going to have the big ideas. And look at our local workforce pipeline right now. We're relocating people in from a lot of places for our new fintech, right? Fintech is huge here and just um, all of our technology companies, our startups that are happening. There is a new workforce pipeline that we have to develop our students for. And so our school system must reflect what our workforce needs because let's be honest, we want our kids to go through the educational system, go to college, go to work, whatever it is that they're trying to become prepared for, but we want them to stay here, right? We want them to be able to bring those skills and talents to utilize in our workforce and, and have just the best talent in the region. We shouldn't have to go other places for it. We want to build them here. Well, that's about all the time we have. Uh, Nelson Bollier, Vice Chair, and Stephanie Adams, Chair. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and we uh, hope to have you back. Anytime. Sounds good. Thank all you right. very much. Thank you for having us. All right, again, thank you both for your time. We, we appreciate it. And we'll be back after a short break with a closer look at how law enforcement video is and isn't released in North Carolina, along with a deep dive into the world of urban farming. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. On April 21st in Elizabeth City, a black man named Andrew Brown Jr. was shot and killed by Pasquotank County Sheriff's deputies who were attempting to serve an arrest warrant. Seven deputies were initially put on administrative leave that was later reduced to three who had fired their weapons during the incident. Few details were released by law enforcement, but it quickly became clear that Brown did not have a gun. Brown's family, anguished, called the shooting an execution at the same time, District Attorney Andrew Womble claimed the deputies only opened fire after Brown, who was behind the wheel of a vehicle, backed up and, quote, made contact with them. Taking place just a day after a jury found former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of the murder of George Floyd, the death of another unarmed black man at the hands of law enforcement created understandable tension, and the lack of information did nothing to defuse the situation. For those unfamiliar with North Carolina law, a simple solution presented itself. Release the body cam footage of the deputies, which would, at the very least, show some of what had happened. But in our state, it's not that simple. A 2016 law made it difficult for law enforcement video, like body and dash cam footage, to be released, even by agencies that want it released. The law makes it more difficult for even those who appear on camera to see that footage. But, while the law is considered limiting, it is not airtight, and there are cases, including here in Wilmington, where journalists have successfully gone to court to get footage released. Our guest today, WECT host and journalist Ashley Kozakowski, is among them. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Alright, so let's break this down. One of the first things I want to get into is, in the Brown case, there was a lot of confusion about disclosing this law enforcement video to the family versus releasing that video to the public. Can you help us break that down a little bit? Well, two different things here. The family had the opportunity with their lawyer to go into a room and watch what they said was 20 seconds of this deadly encounter. Now, the Pasquotank Sheriff's Office also says that the 20 seconds is the entirety of of the deadly encounter. That, so that's what they showed to the family. Now, they were able to go into a room, not take a cell phone, not record it, and see this footage. The sheriff's office says they watched it several times, but that's different from releasing this video to the family to do whatever they want with it, to share it with the media. And that's 
different from just releasing it out to the public in general? So you've actually done this. Uh, actually, you and I have done this. Yes. With the Wilmington Police Department. So for people who didn't follow that, what did we have to go through when we wanted uh, video release? And give people a little backdrop on the, on the story we were working on. Well, we were working on the case of the two women who went missing in a car wreck that happened along River Road and Independence Boulevard. And unfortunately, there was a 911 call the night that they went missing. And some the caller said, I saw a car disappear into the woods. Now, there was a bit of a he spoke with an accent. So I feel like his urgency maybe got lost in translation as well. That's what we saw in the video later. But we went um, to the we, we wanted to see what did the officers see that night while they were searching for this missing car along the road, this car that the 911 caller said just vanished. So you and I teamed up, hashtag dream team. Yeah. 2016, the legislature passes this law that makes it so a superior court judge is the only one who is allowed to approve the release of body camera video or dash camera video. So it's not considered open record, according to this law. It's not considered public record. So as a result, we have to go first and file this document in court. I remember Venmoing you 100 bucks. Yeah, you Venmoed me. We split the $200 fee. (laughs) So I I do see that as a bit of a barrier to the public getting access to these recordings as well, because step one, $200. Um, And you go down to the courthouse, you pay your $200, you get on the calendar, and you have to alert the um, agency with whom you're requesting the video, meet us in court, basically. Um, And then we argued in front of a superior court judge. And in our case, it was interesting because it was pandemic times. So we did this over Zoom. Right. And so you and I were effectively the plaintiffs. And the defense attorney is Daniel Thurston, or in, in really any attorney for the law enforcement agency in this case. He was the attorney for the Wilmington Police Department. So we told the judge, here's why we want to see it. And uh, WPD said, here's why they shouldn't have it. <laughs> uh, and in the, in the statute, there are, you know, like a, there's a checklist of things. Um, but WPD wasn't super into the idea of us getting access to this video. They were not. There are, in the statute, there are several criteria that are laid out. And in court, we argued it point by point. And I think our strong argument in this case was, is this in compelling public interest? So in the case of the two women who went missing, uh, Stephanie Mayorga and Paige Escalera, we got so many phone calls, emails, Facebook messages about the story from the public asking, was the search thorough enough? So we went to the judge with all of those comments saying the public really wants to know what happened that night and why their car wasn't discovered on that evening when the 911 call went out, why instead it was discovered some three and a half weeks later, almost a month later. So we argued in front of the judge, you and I, that um, this was in the compelling public interest. People wanted to know what happened. And in the end, the judge uh, agreed with our argument. Um, Mr. Thurston argued that it was 
releasing the video was uh, would satisfy some curiosity, but there was no compelling public interest, basically. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've heard him use that term in, in other cases. And that is something the judge has to decide. Is is there a real reason the public should see this video? Because often, I mean, this video could be graphic. It could be disturbing. And the judge has to balance, you know, basically how how worthwhile is it? Also, you know, we had to wait for the investigation to be over. That's uh, part of the statute, too. Um, but we saw Mr. Thurston in court again uh, on a different case, and this was interesting because he was on the opposites. He was, we were, he was making the opposite argument. Um, yeah, this was in the case where uh, three officers from Wilmington Police were fired, were terminated because they allegedly used the N word and other racial slurs and just some awful language, and it was caught on video on the recordings, uh, the in car recordings, and. They were let go from the uh, police department, and in this case, the police department was the petitioner, not the media, and they argued that the release of this video was in compelling public interest. Um, they wanted to be transparent. They said they had, Daniel Thurston said in court, we have nothing to hide. But the attorney for a few of the officers on the other side argued his clients were already getting death threats. There is a part of the statute says, will it jeopardize the safety of an individual? And that was a pretty strong argument from him. But it was interesting to see Thurston on the other side and WPD on the other side, because we've been up against them a few times where they've said, we don't want to release this video just to satisfy curiosity. And here on in this case, they were asking a judge, we want to be transparent. We want, as a police department, to be transparent, release this video. And the judge said no. Yeah. Uh, I think what's fascinating about this is, you know, like in the Brown case, um, here's a here's an example of a law enforcement agency wanting to say, no, we want to be transparent. We want to show you the video. Uh, we think it'll settle things. You know, we think it'll show our side of the story. And the law doesn't doesn't care. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. care that if the, that the agency that holds the recording when they want to release it, they can't. But it's interesting. I mean, back in 2016, when the law was passed, Governor, then Governor Pat McCrory said that this will ensure transparency. I think if you speak to the family of Andrew Brown Jr., they'll tell you this does not ensure transparency. And what the law did back then was put a process in place. At least there was a process. Before this, you could go to a police department or a sheriff's office and ask for this video, and they could say no. 100 percent of the time they could say it's part of an ongoing investigation and you never get access to it. So at least this put a a policy, a procedure in place where we can have the opportunity to go in front of a judge and ask for the release of this video. Now, is this 100 percent ensuring transparency? No, not when the police departments themselves or the sheriff's office want to release something and can't get a superior court judge to sign off on it. I mean, is that transparent? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an excellent question, I think. you know, uh, And obviously this law is back in the spotlight now for, for that very reason. Um, because if you don't have a bystander who's streaming this on Facebook or recording it, the body cam is, I mean, why have the body cam? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I've always just wondered, everything else owned by a city department or a police department, our tax dollars pay for that. That is in the public realm. That, that is our equipment. Those are our cameras that are recording what's happening out there. Our taxpayer dollars pay for those. Absolutely. Uh, so the last thing I want to touch on is 
Um, in the Brown case, and obviously you and I weren't there, but uh, a judge did rule on um, allowing to, as you described, disclose this footage to the family. Uh, they were allowed to come in and watch it, but not to release it uh, to the public. And from the reporting, it sounds like his argument wasn't that the media didn't make a good case, but that the media didn't have standing. And that's sounds like legal jargon, but it's, it's substantially different in that it's the difference between saying, of course, the media is welcome to petition for the release of this, and then I weigh the statutory reasons. You know, I go down the checklist like you and I did in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, it sounds like what they were saying was, I don't think the media is in a place where they should be requesting this at all. And that, uh, I'm comfortable saying, that's if that's the case, that's a little disturbing. It is disturbing. And it goes against the attorney in this case said he's argued some 30 of these cases across the state. So suddenly the media doesn't have standing. Yeah, no, I, I that's the same concern I had. I, I saw your Twitter post. And I, <laughs> I, I share your concern. And I think from the journalist's point of view, the addition of more evidence, the more video, more you know information out there usually helps. Um, I understand that there's an argument that this could inflame people. Uh, tensions have rarely been higher. I know there were concerns about Elizabeth City, uh, where the shooting took place, uh, experiencing protests that turns into, you know, gets out of control. But I think the lack of information seems to be just as inflaming. So I, I 100% exactly. get your concern. Well, and I think it's important to note, as we discuss this, too, that lawmakers are discussing possible changes to the law in light of what's happening here with the Andrew Brown Jr. case. Um, so a Democrat in the House has introduced new legislation that would put more of the pressure on the police department. The, the videos would be released within 48 hours unless the police department or sheriff's office goes to the judge or goes to the court and says, we can't release this because of uh, ongoing investigation, public safety. It would be more in their court to argue for the release or against the release than it would be the media or an individual or a family going to a judge. Well, that's definitely one to watch. Uh, Ashley Kozakowski from WECT, thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, thank you. All right. And we will have links on the show page to the stories Ashley and I worked on for WECT and Port City Daily, as well as links to the coverage of the judge's decision to not release the video in the Andrew Brown case. Coming up after the break, we take a deep dive into the world of urban farming, something that may see a resurgence under Wilmington's new land use code. We'll take a look at the potential benefits from helping to deal with affordable housing to improving food literacy to building community. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Please stay with us. It's about an hour before sunrise, and except for these birds, it seems that no one else is awake in my neighborhood. So here I am, on my porch, like a helicopter parent, checking on the plants. That's 50 or so square feet of radishes, tomatoes, peppers, uh, a half dozen different herbs. I was worried about the overnight temperature dip, but my fears appear to have been unwarranted. The, the plants are fine. Okay, time for coffee. Properly caffeinated, I take a walk around my neighborhood. The sun's just up, but many of my neighbors are already out early tending to their yards.
That's the sounds of suburban spring in Wilmington. Mostly my neighbors have the traditional lawn, but increasingly, I've been seeing gardens spring up. Some like the one on my porch, but others are a bit more substantial, what you could properly call urban farming. In addition to being Ben Shockman, managing editor for WHQR, I suppose I could also be considered an urban farmer, although at a very amateur and very small-scale level. Full disclosure here, my partner does most of the work. She grows and I cook. It's very farm-to-table, but even with our modest porch garden, we sometimes have more than we can use. I suppose that goes for a lot of small gardens around Wilmington, where excess herbs and fruits and vegetables are gifted to friends and neighbors. As I discovered as a child when my parents kept the backyard garden, there are only so many times a week when you want to eat zucchini. Back then, I once asked my parents why we didn't sell our extra vegetables, since they were certainly fresher than what was in the grocery store. My parents' answer? It was illegal. Now, that wasn't exactly true back then, and it isn't exactly true now in Wilmington, but it is difficult. You can sell your produce through local vendors without the regulatory steps required for selling meat and dairy, but there are still some extra steps. Basically, what you can't do is set up a farm stand on your own front yard and then sell the fruits and vegetables of your labors. So, for many, urban farming never grows beyond its amateur roots. For most, including me, it just stays a hobby. Our guest today, Evan Folds, would like to see that change. Folds has worked in agriculture in many capacities for a long time, and for the last several years, he's been pushing for a change to Wilmington's land use code that would allow some kinds of urban farming. Now, the city is proposing some of those changes, although farming and selling produce right on your own property would still be barred, and that's something Folds is hoping will be changed as public feedback comes in. I'm joined now by Evan Folds, who, in addition to knowing a lot about this, is also an elected supervisor with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. So some of you may remember uh, Evan was on the program talking about the Northside Food Co-op. That's still very much a thing. But today we're going to talk about urban farming. So let's start with Evan. What's the change in the code that we're looking at? Yeah, essentially the change is an upgrade of... Um, the opportunity to commercially farm uh, residential and urban mixed-use properties, uh, really property in general in Wilmington. The way the code is, has been written, and it's been this way for 30, 40 years since we've undertaken a, a city rewrite of the code, which is now published on the city website that you can read for public comment, um, is that you can only farm commercially a residential uh, property in a 60-day window out of the year. And, and I believe that the reason that, that it's that way is for like Lewis Farms and youth pick operations that might have a window of commerce that they wanted to accomplish. And really, it's a remnant of the, the reality, I think, that nobody's really ever had the conversation in Wilmington around doing this. Um, so that that change is moving from, you know, that very restrictive posture, that 60 day window to sell what you grow is not conducive to a farm at all. Um, from that to the allowance of urban mixed use currently, as it's written, urban mixed use to uh, with a permit as if you follow the law you can farm and then residential properties you can farm empty lots as a primary use but c currently it's not being proposed that you would be able to farm your residential landscape where your house is on um, and, I, and that's that's a point that you know we can talk about and that, that we hope to bring some advocacy towards uh, so that people can help us push it across the finish line to let us grow in our landscapes yeah. uh, and you've been working on this for a considerable amount of time yeah, yeah, it's really been a couple of years since I was elected uh, with New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District. You know, started beating a drum about a learning farm uh, need for that in New Hanover County in Wilmington. We need to save farming in New Hanover County. You know, we don't have traditional farming. We won't because of our, our, how small we are geographically. 
uh, the property value is not conducive. So we've really just kind of abandoned the, re- the idea of agriculture. And incidentally, as an anecdote, there is one agricultural teacher in New Hanover County school system. There was two. He retired. Now there is one. It's at Holly Shelter. Uh, he's doing a great job, but he's under underutilized, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, he's got to carry the whole weight all by himself. Pretty heavy. Um, so in and of itself, the, the code update is something of a victory here because people under certain conditions, you are going to be able to do more uh, urban urban farming. And we're talking about, you know, year round, um, the way farming is supposed to be done. Um, right. Not just like a sort of almost novelty strawberry crop, right? But like actual stuff that you could make, you know, actual one, you could actually produce a viable amount of food, but also you could support yourself. But I think the key issue here for me, what I was interested in is this idea that people on their own properties, on their own, what is by and large right now, uh, the the lawn, the great American lawn, and maybe we could talk about this too, is um, that's, that's still a step that we need to get to. So, Let's talk about this. Why is it important for people to be able to f- basically farm on their own property? Uh, well, that's a profound question, um, and there's different levels to it. To start in the clouds, uh, you know, agriculture uh, was the beginning of the human story, right? It, it wasn't until we started planting seeds deliberately and putting roots down uh, as civilizations that we could allow ourselves to become what we are. So it, it literally is the beginning of, of us. Um and, and then, you know, when you get down kind of from the clouds into the more immediate reality, um, you know, there's a farmer, uh, his colleague up in British Columbia, his name's Curtis Stone. He's known as the urban farmer. You can look him up on YouTube. Look up YouTube and $100,000 on a quarter of an acre of property. And it, it's an 18-minute video of it's him doing this, generating hundred grand a year out of a quarter of an acre of residential property with a house on it. So that's a total extreme, right? Like I wouldn't suggest that the average person would even think about ever doing that. But what if that number could be five or $10,000 a year, right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually policy director with the uh, Learning Farm Project of Feast Down East, and they have a $200,000 USDA uh, grant that they're planning this urban farm for Wilmington. And it, and it can engage the education, best cross-disciplinary activity that there is, is farming and gardening. Um, it's great in schools. It's also therapy. Um, you know, there's a tremendous data out there around the well-being that it brings to get your hands in the soil, et cetera, et cetera. So those are proven, but I'm really enamored with this economic development tool, you know, is that the idea is we're having this, for example, an affordable housing conversation. We can't make building and development cheaper necessarily um, without being really creative. So what if we could provide tools that could help people supplement their income? Um, in, in this day and age. And for me, that only makes sense. It's a, it's a little bit of a different way of thinking on several levels, like the cottage industry sort of concept and et cetera. But it makes common sense. And it's one of those areas where you can really get like a three to five to one, you know, like what I mean by that is, you know, you get therapy out of it. You know, you get education gotcha. about yeah. what is living soil. You can make money doing it. Um, you know, you're getting all you're you're layering in and kind of stacking functions, as people like to say. It's 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 a very very potent uh, tool that we have that's completely really underutilized uh, in our region. Yeah, and to give you know listeners a sense of of what we're talking about when we're talking about you know affordable housing issue is to support an affordable housing unit. Basically, the difference between what would cost burden someone making you know, a lower income job and the market rate is about $5,000 a year, you know, so we're not talking, you don't have to make a hundred K to solve the affordable housing crisis. Five, an extra five grand a year could help you close the gap between 
what the you know average cost burden New Hanover or Wilmington resident is making and the average you know two bedroom apartment. The other part of and, and you and I have talked about this before. This is I will I promise I will not get on my soapbox about this, but it see it always strikes me as someone who has worked in restaurants who who loves food, who loves produce in particular, um, and who I have my own little garden on my on my front porch. It's it's small but mighty. Uh, I have more jalapenos than I know what to do with. Um, is every you know driving around suburban Wilmington, suburban New Hanover County, and seeing lawns and thinking about the time and the energy and the emotional investment that goes into lawns um, that are producing essentially nothing but aggravation. Um, exactly right. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I could find a cultural historian who could lay this out for me as how the American public got sort of gaslit into thinking that this was the best use of their time and energy. But I see people laboring, you know, watering the grass, you know, trimming it, taking care of it. And it seems to me for reasonably in the same range of effort, you could be growing food that you could both sell and eat. And it seems it would be in general, a more beneficial use of time and space energy. Am I crazy? <laughs> is Or is that part of this? No, you're all over it. I mean, you know, and this is, you know, food, not lawns is a really good ecosystem if people wanted to kind of tread in, in this arena. Uh, it's, I, I think a lot of people look at this with the extreme frustration and wonder really, because, you know, the irrigated lawn is 10 times larger than the, the average, the next largest crop, corn, 10 times larger in the irrigated land, right? So the infrastructure, so to speak, is there, it's extremely diversified. And, you know, that the amount of uh, labor, let's say, that you would want uh, to upkeep a, a farm in your landscape versus a lawn, it may be a little more with the farm. Uh, in some ways, a lot, depending on your scale. Um, but the the real traction, because you know, I, I've, I've had an organic lawn care company in this town. I had a retail garden center for 15 years, and I've engaged, done thousands of soil tests in this area. Really, never once have I seen a sufficient soil test by the numbers. And so a lot of that frustration comes from the fact that we're starting with developed property and poor soil and people replace their lawns. My neighbor does it every other year. It's insane. Uh, what we've trained ourselves to expect here is really low on, on the, uh, the bar. And so, you know, not only does it make common sense, but, you know, when you factor in like connecting that affordable housing reality, it, it, it's not a matter of if that will work. It's absolutely doable. I mean, I mean, we did a food lawn project with Progressive Gardens many years ago, maybe a decade ago, and we determined in Wilmington climate, you could grow $100 in basil every 50 square feet, eight months out of the year. So if you had, and 50 square feet is not a big area, it's a kitchen table, right? A pretty larger one. But but the point is, if you've got 10 people in a neighborhood that say yes, there's $1,000 a month, there's 250 to hire someone to go do it. There's a model in there, and I won't geek out on that aspect of it. But the point is, if we were intentional about it, what we need is just laying around and in the margins. And, and a lot of what that takes is making the opportunity available, um, but also educating ourselves on the impact of how we're maintaining our land. And you know, I'd love to come back for another conversation on uh, an organic park pilot that we have in development with the city that bleeds into healthy waste stream management. Uh, and these, these, these fundamentals, if you don't get organic land care or natural land care, organic is kind of a trigger word for people, um, but if you don't treat the soil the way that it would like to be treated, it's not going to perform in the way that you want. And that's where weeds, pests, and disease come from. That's where the toxic rescue chemistry comes from. That's where human disease comes from. Nobody wants that. Yet we're doing these things on purpose. And I'd finish this point to say, you know, I did an information request with the city of Wilmington. I don't mean to pick on them because this is pervasive. But there's more than 10 
documented toxic chemicals that we are using in routine city land care. Um, and we need to be knowledgeable about that. And unfortunately, when I, when I ask, you know, what, what's being done when, there is no protocol of who's spraying what where. Um, this is, these are big problems. Yeah. So this is kind of the beginning and the foundation of this bigger conversation. I want to put a pin in that because I absolutely want to bring you back and talk more about that. Um, but I do want to bring it back to farms for, for this episode. And yep. you touched on a couple strands here that I, that I want to follow up on. Um, one is this idea of, you know, I live in the Murrayville area, so we could have the Murrayville Pesto Cooperative. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that the the code will have some language about whether or not you can just grow things or whether or not you could actually have like a production facility. The difference between growing strawberries and selling them or growing strawberries and making strawberry jam and selling them. But even if we just take it at the most basic level, right? So uh, I'm growing four or even three, you know, seasonal rounds of crops. You know, I got the uh, the three sisters. I got the corn, squash, and beans, and then whatever else, whatever else tickles my agricultural fancy. And so, one benefit is is directly it's profit, right? But there's there's higher level, sort of more conceptual, maybe more philosophical benefits here. And I think for me, I think the, one of the next levels is this idea of getting people less disconnected from food. Um, I know this is something you've talked in, to me about before. Um, but this sort of, I don't know, what would you call it? Food literacy. I don't know. Um, so how does, how does that benefit play out? Well, I, well, it, you know, the way that I approach this and, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and sort of kind of stumbled into this reality, trying to synthesize what is the power of agriculture. And, you know, the real reality is that agriculture is about more than growing crops. It's also, you know, how we eat, what we eat. Eating is an agricultural act. Um, you know, it's also the impact that the way we eat and the way we grow food has on environmental health, on public health, and on individual health. And if we're not looking at the way we're doing these things in that paradigm, we get what we got, which is the average meal takes 1,500 miles to get to a plate. You know, kids don't realize that you know French fries and ketchup are potatoes and tomatoes, or at least they're supposed to be. Um, you know, it, it, we, we've lost the thread of what nourishes us. And then we look back at the medical community um, and, you know, big pharma and these, these forces, and it's, it's, it's easy to offend people that are doing good work in those arenas. So I don't want to be careful not to paint a, a complete brush on it, but the overall paradigm of how we nourish ourselves and treat the chronic disease that is literally terrifyingly off the charts, um, is, is not good enough. Um, it's, it's just simply not. And, and it's really born of the fact that we've lost the thread of this food farming and health paradigm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom. I'm joined on this episode by Evan Folds, and we're talking about urban agriculture. And Evan is taking us into the more some of the bigger, broader ramifications of a, basically a more personal connection to farming. And I think you're right. I think the, the average person's uh, food literacy or agricultural literacy is, is pretty grim. But if you just go to the supermarket and look at the labels on the food, I mean, some of it's crying out to you. You know, you're... Your produce is coming from California. Your produce is coming from Mexico. I mean, we when I worked in the restaurant industry, one of the things that always blew my mind when I uh, bef- this is before the farm to table revolution, which is yeah, it's a buzzword, but it's also a good thing. I remember there was there was fish that had been caught off the coast of North Carolina, uh, frozen on the boat, 
uh, shipped inland to Charlotte or somewhere else, and then trucked back to Wilmington restaurants uh, on a Cisco truck. And that was not even close to the most insane journey your food could take. Well, uh, bingo. And I've, I've done some of those same sort of mind-blowing exposés. I think one of them was like waffles. And, and they, they were showing how it went from the United Kingdom to China. I mean, not, not only cities away, but like entire countries away. And the global f- food system is entirely inefficient. I mean, 1% of people identify as farmers uh, anymore, right? Um, so, you know, we're literally and figuratively so far away from what nourishes us. Um, we're not able to take advantage of it. And, you know, that it, the concept of being educated about this is, you know, I saw this in Progressive Gardens. I, I would see people that were wanting to put their good foot forward and being self-sufficient almost every day. And our lives are so busy, right? We're overwhelmed with all of the things that we're responsible for and the things that are coming at us and, the changes that are happening in the world, especially now, and people get frustrated that they can't grow all of their own food and they sort of just write it off, right? Well, you, you don't have to grow all of your own food to be self-sufficient and to impact the agricultural system. You, you literally, you know, the way you eat impacts that. I mean, you, you know, if you ask your server, if you go to a rest, you know, where food is comes from, if you, if you go to restaurants that encourage these kinds of things, it literally defines what it is that we're served ultimately. Um, so unless we're empowered and, and kind of activated our creative agency within that reality, um, you know, and you factor in to your point earlier, you know, it's one thing to talk about produce and whole foods, but literally more than 60% of the average American diet is, is pasture is, is processed. Um, and, and a certain, and a majority of that is ultra processed, which means it's, it's not whole in any sense whatsoever. It's an extract of a wholeness so it's not even food anymore. For me, it bleeds back to a connection to agriculture. And that's, that's how important this is. Yeah. So that's, there's that part of it. There's the health and well-being part of it. There's the sort of, you know, better understanding the world's, uh, agricultural networks. There's also a community aspect to this too. And I think this is, this is something you've touched at. This is, you know, part and parcel of the Northside food co-op. Um, but so what are the, some of the things you can do? So let's say this new code lets you really go to town and every person can basically have a working farm on their house. What are some of the you know new avenues, the new opportunities you see that would come out of that? Yeah, well, what's exciting is you know we already have a lot of this infrastructure here. Uh, you know, Feast Down East is is an ideal vehicle to to receive the food that people grow. Uh, you know, assuming that we coordinate crops that are needed uh, in abundance. Um, you know, and facilitating these markets of. You know, I, I, when I was developing out that food lawn uh, kind of paradigm long ago, you know, I had this vision of like, you know, home growers and home farmers and then branch managers that would be responsible to go collect it. And, you know, it's, so there would be some, some needs to do some work, but, um, but the infrastructure for that is there. And the community piece that you're, you're referencing is really important. And what's interesting is, you know, this food farming health paradigm that I described a minute ago is really what hooked me about the Northside Food Co-op. Because you have this opportunity to impact the way people eat. And the number one turnout that we have for events is for our uh, neighborhood gardening and agricultural events. And, and I don't think that's uh, 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 just a happenstance. You know, I, I think we're tapping in. We sort of feel like we found a way in, right? It's like this universally human space that everyone wants, if we're asked, that we really feel like we have no time. And if we do, it's not successful because our soil's so poor. And and then we just kind of disconnect, right? And we're stuck in this rut. So what would it be like to have a city that adopted urban agriculture as part of its identity? You know, I mean, uh, there would be people that would move here for that, you know, and I see this signal 
of you know the code rewrite and the proposed language as being a first step in doing that. Yeah. I, I, so I mean, I guess the to be devil's advocate here, there are going to be people who don't care about this, who are like, mm-hmm. no, I love my lawn, or just don't want to put in the time and energy because I I wouldn't want to misrepresent this as as a person with a small porch garden. That's still a bunch of work. You know, anyone who has a garden and has brought all of your herbs and plants in and filled up your bathtub and living room because it's going to be cold out, you know, you worry about them like children. It's a little weird. Uh, and not everyone's going to be in for that. But it's your sense that there are, and not just your sense speculating, your sense from watching people show up, that there's more than enough people who are invested in this, either at the community level or on their own on their own turf, literally. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that for 20 years. And, you know, I did Progressive Gardens for 15 years. And the way people engaged when I started the business was a, a completely uh, different than, you know, when I stepped back from it. Uh, people's mindset has changed around this. I think a lot of it has to do with these pain points of chronic disease and, you know, Western medicine not having an antidote, right? It, it's the way we nourish ourselves. And we could go off on a whole tangent there. Um, so there's these these things that are happening. And then COVID, you know, it was an extreme catalyst to this concept. I mean, everybody can nod their head to that at this point. Uh, I think the challenge is to make sure that we're talking about it in a way that can really meet the potential of it. Well, I feel like we've barely, barely scratched the surface, and I can think of at least three or four things we're going to have to have you back on to talk about. Um, but that's all the time we got for this episode to talk about uh, urban agriculture. But we'll have links on the page uh, to show people how they can weigh in on this with the city of Wilmington and links to some of your work. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And we hope to have you on again. Can't wait, Ben. You're the man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Stephanie Adams, Nelson Bollier, Ashley Kozakowski, and Evan Folds. And thanks to Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig for engineering this program. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org and it will air again this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And one day, it will hopefully be available on Google Play. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.